Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. Just before Christmas, we completed our study of the apostles that we'd been doing on Sunday evenings, and somebody had asked, so what are we going to do now? Well, we also completed our study on Sunday mornings of the book of Revelation, or of Ephesians, but as we completed that, I really wanted to come back on Sunday evenings and look at the armor of God and understanding the importance of being ready for the battle that we're all engaged in. As we concluded that study, I thought it, it, I personally find it helpful to meditate upon the various aspects of the, the Christian's armor and how to be strengthened. John Bunyan, who's best known for writing the classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, also penned another work, the book, The Holy War. And in that, he describes the, the battle for a town, the town of Mansoul. Mansoul was built for the glory and the enjoyment of the sovereign of the universe, King Shaddai. And the town was a beautiful town. It displayed the splendor of the, the rule of the king. Well, there was a prince in Shaddai's domain named Diabolos. He had authority, but he rejected the, the king and was cast out of the realm. In the story then, he looked for something that, that the king held dear, something that really was the object of the king's affection that he could destroy. And as he looked, he found the town of Mansoul. He knew that was a place of the king's favor. And so his desire was to destroy the town of Mansoul. And Bunyan describes the scheme of the, the satanic council that meets on how to take the city of Mansoul, that prized possession of Shaddai. And while they discussed various assaults, the direct assault, they realized that would never work because there was no way to enter the, the town of Mansoul unless the inhabitants consented. And so through duplicity, they were able to gain entrance. And in so doing, the city forsook their king for Diabolos. And although Mansoul rejected the king, Shaddai sent his son, Emmanuel, to reclaim it. And the book talks about the battle that rages. The battle that rages is that holy war. And it's a wonderful reminder for us that we are in a battle. You know, we often forget that and realize, think the problems we face are because of people, and yet there is a spiritual battle raging. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. I want us to look at the, the passage and really this evening to be reminded of the conflict that is taking place. I think most of us are aware of it, but to be sensitized because this passage introduces us to that holy war. We see it in, in this passage, that spiritual struggle that is taking place. If you have your Bibles open to Ephesians 6, look with me at verse 10. Ephesians 6, verse 10, it says, Finally, my brethren... Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. And then it goes on and it speaks about the various aspects of the armor. In this passage, we see that there is this battle, and it's it's an urgency for us as believers to realize. This is written to believers, finally my brethren. It's an encouragement for us as Christians that that there is this battle, but we have to grasp that there is a warfare. You know, non-believers don't understand this. They, They don't understand. In fact, some of them would ridicule the aspect of a spiritual battle raging. They, they really do not grasp it. They don't put stock in the spiritual realm. As we talked about this morning, the, the concerns for the material. And they have no faith in Jesus Christ. Some even doubt God's existence. So the idea of a spiritual battle raging and being a very personal aspect is, is not even on their radar. The idea of principalities, powers, rulers of darkness of this world and, and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places doesn't make sense. But for believers, we cannot be oblivious to this battle because we have an enemy. The battle in the spirit realm that that God is spirit, Satan is spirit, demons and angels are spirit, and, and we have a spirit aspect to us. And so the, the culture views people as things and, and often as objects rather than as souls. You know, we we will all spend eternity somewhere. And the spirit is the essence of something. So so the characteristic of the conflict is the characteristic of of the age that there is a spiritual battle raging. The the course of this world that is mentioned uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, it's directed by Satan, the, the prince of the power of the air working in the children, the the sons of disobedience that are driven by the desires of the flesh and of the mind. That's the spiritual battle. And so there are some very practical aspects that help us in understanding that, that this battle takes place, that every Christian is a soldier. Numerous statements in Scripture, in the New Testament, call us to that battle, to, to fight the good fight, to, to be soldiers in the battle. We're called to an intense life of, and life-in-death struggle in this way. It's, we are in hand-to-hand combat, and we must grip tightly to the sword of the Spirit. We, we must have the, the armor on. It says in 1 Timothy 6, 12, fight the good fight. And, and the Greek word there is the word from which we get our English word, agony. It's agonize the good agony is the picture that's being laid out. That we are in a battle and that every day we will experience either victory or setback in our spiritual battle. That this is, this is not a one and done event, but there is a battle raging. God wants us to be victorious. That's God's desire for each one of us as Christians. And, and you find that in this passage, the, the imperatives that are laid out, there's four of them, be strong in verse 10 put on in verse 11 take up take unto you in verse 13 and then in verse 14 stand these are the imperatives and we can only be victorious as we we ponder and practice biblical truth 
And so the importance of the meditating upon it. Now, we tend to think of this battle beginning back in Genesis chapter 3. Most of us are familiar because that's where the battle for Mansoul, as, as that allegory that is used by Bunyan, is, is laid out. But actually, the conflict began before the garden. And to understand our foe and the seriousness, it's helpful for us to see that. There's a, there are several other passages because Satan, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, is the God of this world. The evil genius that inspires people to find creative ways to sin and also then to find creative ways to justify sin. And so we need to understand our foe if we're going to be taking the battle seriously. And there are several passages that kind of pull back the curtain on that struggle. This began long ago, and there's two in the Old Testament that I'd like us to consider this evening that that really help us in this. The first one is in Ezekiel that I want us to turn back to, and then there's one in Isaiah. Now, I realize, and I invite you to turn to Ezekiel 28 with me. As you're turning, let me mention, I realize there, there is some debate as to whether these passages are referring simply to the earthly kings who are mentioned, the king of, of Babylon in Isaiah, the king of Tyre in Ezekiel. I, I personally think they look beyond the earthly rulers to the power behind them. And I think there are indicators in the text that, that would give that, that the language is, is not appropriate to simply be applied to an ordinary man, to, a, to an earthly king. The, the passages are not only speaking of the earthly king, but I think it's the, the power that is behind the scene. And it helps us to understand that. In, in Ezekiel 28, look with me at verse 12. Ezekiel 28, beginning in verse 12. It says... Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. So the king of Tyre is the one that's being mentioned here. And say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. And that's why I think this is focusing on the power behind the king and then it mentions the various precious stones. Every precious stone was your covering. The, the sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Verse 14, you were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And then it talks about this. And and so Satan was an angel created by God, given tremendous power and beauty and authority. He was the epitome of God's creation, but he wanted more. He wanted to be like God himself. And so verse 17 provides the only clue as to what occurred in Satan's mind. It says in verse 17, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may gaze upon you. That, that he was lifted up with his own beauty. Now, I don't, I don't know if there were mirrors in heaven, or maybe he gazed into the sea of glass, but somehow he, he saw this and said, look at me. 
Look at how great I am. Look at how good-looking I am. And, and yet the beauty that he had was given to him by God. And how foolish it is for us to claim for prideful purposes what God has given us. You know, if somebody has great mental ability, you say, well, look how smart I am. Well, you got it from God. If they have physical ability, if they have sports ability, it was given by God. And if God gave it, he can take it away. And yet that's the picture that we have here. And so what we see is that, that Satan used God's gift, gifts for selfish goals. He wanted them for himself when they were given for the glory of God. And, and that arrogance led to rebellion. That ambition that the creature ought to give the glory to the creator, yet instead wanted the glory to himself. And so we get the curtain pulled back to see into the mind of, of this king of Tyre, the power behind him, the one who was in Eden, this created being. But then we have another passage that, that helps us in the understanding, and that's in Isaiah 14. And I want to have you turn back to Isaiah with me as well. Isaiah chapter 14, the, the fall of Lucifer, the literally day star is what it means there. In Isaiah chapter 14, look with me at verse 12. It says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, and notice the I wills in this passage, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. The passage draws our attention to, to Satan's pre-fall condition, the Lucifer, the shining one. And, and to see this, and then that's the last time that term is used for him. There are a lot of other terms used in Scripture after the fall. But it provides the, the character of his sin. And, and the question is one of amazement. How, you know, how far you have fallen. How you have fallen from heaven. How you've been cut down to the ground. And note those five I wills of rebellion. The first one is, I will ascend into heaven. He, he wanted to occupy heaven as God's equal. The servant wanted to be served. He was created to serve God as a created being, as an, as an angel. That was the purpose, to, to serve God. And yet he wanted to be served. He wanted equal recognition. That's the idea here. I, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. He wanted to obtain authority. The, the ability to rule. The adoration and that others would obey him in the angelic kingdom. That angels were created to adore God, not to adore another angel. But he said, I want my throne to be of the, above the stars of God. And the, the idea here, the, then the third one, I will also sit on the mount of the congregation or the assembly on the farthest sides of the north. The, the idea here is, is that he would usurp the kingdom of God. It describes his ambition to control the, the various affairs of the universe. The, the fourth one, 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And the idea here is seeking the glory that, was des- that God deserved. The, the clouds are associated with God's glory and his presence. Well, Satan desired that somehow he would excel that glory. Or at least take the glory that belonged to God to himself. And then he said, I will be like the Most High. He wanted to gain God-like status. He, he wanted this, this self-assertion is a defiance against God. I find it interesting, Satan didn't want to be unlike God. He didn't say, I want to be ungodly. I want to be anti-God or anti-Christ. He said, no, I want to be like God. And yet the contradiction here in the thinking that to, to claim to be like the Most High meant he wasn't the Most High. That for that desire meant he wasn't there and as a created being he could never be there. He could never be all-knowing though he was the wisest created being. He could never be everywhere at once though he could travel quickly. He couldn't be all-powerful although he had power. And he couldn't make himself infinite and self-existing as God. He couldn't be the Most High. And, And so really the only way that he could be like the Most High was to take authority for himself, to be the one calling the shots, to be in control. And that's really the the idea here, that that he wanted to be the authority, that no authority outside of himself would govern his life, that he would answer to no one. And isn't that the same thing that we're tempted with today? That we don't want to be in authority. We, We live in a nation that doesn't like authority. They don't want to be in authority. They don't want authority over them, but they want to run their own lives. He could be like God by being answerable to nobody. That exercising independence and authority over the angelic realm and and, and ruling in that way. And that's really what the desire was. That Satan's sin was a direct challenge to the power and the authority of God himself. When he sought to be like God, he thought God-like authority. But he ended up being a counterfeit. Not a replacement, but a fake substitute. The God of this world. And the rebellion changed his character. And so when I, when I mentioned the, the name Lucifer that's used here of shining one, the, the star of the morning, the sun of the dawn, is not used again. As God's adversary, there are other names that are used to reflect his fallen character. The, the prince of demons the evil one, the destroyer, the tempter, the accuser, the slanderer, the devil, the defamer, Satan, the adversary, the opposer, or that old serpent. All of those are terms that tell of his character. The the holiness that he had received from his creator was lost and replaced with corruption. When Satan rebelled against God and others joined him in opposing that God and his purpose, they were cast out of heaven. And so we find Satan making his first public appearance for, as we see in Genesis chapter 3. And let me have you turn back to Genesis. So we're working our way backwards. In Genesis chapter 3, we find him coming as a serpent, but it, it really, he, he comes to a fellow created being 
those under God's authority, and even one under the authority of Adam and Eve at that point, because it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, God declared, let us make man in our image according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So who was created to rule over creation? Adam and Eve, man. Humans were to be the, either the god of the earth or at least the prince of the earth and ruling for God. That was the created purpose, that, that Adam, in his princely role as prince of the earth, named the animals. He named Eve. He cared for the garden. He was given the, the vice regency to rule for the glory of God. And that's, that's really the picture in Scripture. In fact, in, in Psalm 8, verse 3, it says, When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. And then Psalm 8 verse 6 says, You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Well, that's not how it is today because of the fall. But it's giving us the created purpose, the picture. So what was Satan's first temptation in the garden? What was it that he tried to get humans to do? It was to be independent of God, to call the shots, to make the decisions, to, to eat of that tree because then they could know good and evil, to be their own boss. Really, the idea to be like the Most High. You know, we're familiar with the scene, and, and I'm not going to take time to read through it, but I've had you turn here, but we're familiar with what took place in, in the garden as, as the serpent comes to the woman and is offering this amazing knowledge. Can you imagine the anticipation of that? I mean, have you ever been told about something, maybe something to eat, that just how good this is, something you've never tasted? Oh, you, you have never had anything like this. And the person who's telling you is just so excited and they just keep building it up and giving you all these details and your mouth starts watering and, and you really think this is going to be great. And there becomes that anticipation. And then you eat it and it doesn't measure up to the hype. It's like, well, that was disappointing. That wasn't what I anticipated. Imagine how much more so this was that the one rule that they had in the garden is do not eat of this tree. And now the temptation is if you eat, you're going to have this super knowledge. You're going to know good and evil. You're going to be like God himself. And the anticipation there, there must have been, maybe an adrenaline rush, their, their faces getting flushed with excitement in the anticipation of that. And to realize it's not going to measure up. And then when they take of that fruit and eat, and all of a sudden the knowledge that floods in, and what is that knowledge? The knowledge is they realize they're naked. They don't have any clothes. I don't think that's what they were anticipating. That is not measuring up to what they expected. 
The, the idea that the pleasure of sin would offer so much more and then it doesn't. And now they, they realize that they are unclothed. That really was not an intellectual advancement. They had always been unclothed. But now there's a level of shame. And that's what they're getting. That until this time, they had never felt shame about their condition. They were, as, as one writer put it, they were shameless in the best sense of that term. They were without shame, not because they should have, but because there was nothing to be ashamed of. They had never had anything to hide from each other. But now it wasn't just their bodies, it was a shame of their souls. They felt exposed, as, as one writer said, they, they felt exposed physiologically, psychologically, and physically. There, there was that nakedness, the embarrassment that had taken place. They were embarrassed by their act of defiance, but they're not yet repentant. There, there really isn't a repentance yet, but they're ashamed. John Owens, the Puritan said, sin may be an occasion for great sorrow when there is no sorrow for sin. You know, we can, we can be sorry about sin, and sin will bring sorrow, but that doesn't mean we're, we're truly sorry for sinning. See, the, the consequences go much deeper than the superficial lack of clothing. It's the, it's the shame of a burning conscience. And understanding that, and yet, when we're tempted to sin, isn't it the same thing? Oh, look what sin offers. The pleasure of sin that will be there, and how often does our world pursue that and come back empty? That this, this drink or this drug will solve your problem. This sin, this website is going to bring so much pleasure. That illicit relationship is going to make you happy and you'll be accepted. And then there's emptiness. And we read in Hebrews that Moses refused to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. He thought it far greater to suffer reproach for the name of Christ. And so he chose that. Do we really think we know better than God? When we're tempted, when, our, when there's that anticipation, and that's, that's the picture that we see here. That Satan tries to reproduce that same mentality for us today. To be our own boss. To don't let anybody tell us what to do. Live your life as you please. Do what you want. And it's easy to look then at, at our gifts, our abilities, and say, well, look what I've got. And that's the attitude of Lucifer. It's Luciferian. If we want to be like Christ, we humble ourselves. Jesus humbled himself. He, he took the form of a servant. He, he lived in a house with imperfect parents. And, and yet he still submitted his rights. And so in, John, in, in Genesis 3, we see that downfall. We see the problems that come. We see the, the battle that is raging when people believe the lies of Satan. And the result of the fall is the conflict. It's, it, God's purpose was not for angels to rule the earth especially fallen angels. God created man to have dominion, to be the ruler of the earth. And yet it's Satan that's called the prince of this world. We find that in John chapter 12, verse 31, John 16, verse 11. He ripped away that rule, that authority. And understanding that that was not God's design. 
And we, we can trace this through Scripture. And he, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says in verse 5, for he was not put for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels but one testified in a certain place saying and then it quotes psalm 8 which i read earlier what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of of him you have made him a little lower than the angels and have crowned him with glory and honor and have set him over the works of your hands you have put all things in subjection under his feet We see it in Psalm 8, it's quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, but that's not what we see now because of the fall. And really, one of the key features then of Revelation is the battle of the two kingdoms. In fact, the word kingdom is used, or king is used 30 times in Revelation. The kingdom of this world, Satan's kingdom, and the kingdom of God, and the words that keep being brought up then, and and we rejoice because we are on the winning side. And so it says in, in Revelation 11, verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that's the triumph. That yes, there is a battle raging. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but we are on the winning side. And so the story of this conflict, of, of the desire to rule and be answerable to no one, then plays out beginning in the garden, but the enmity then between Satan's seed and her seed, the serpent and the seed of the woman. And seeing that played out, and this really being in, in Genesis 3.15, that, that first statement of the gospel, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and, and you shall bruise his head, or you will bruise his heel, he will bruise your head. And that's the first statement of the coming of the Messiah. But it was the announcement of the struggle between satanic forces and mankind, the battle for man's soul, for the soul of man. And it provides that picture of the battle that has taken place. And so when we understand this, then we understand that when salvation comes, it takes a person from the kingdom of darkness and places them into the kingdom of light. That we are no more enemies of God, but we are now enemies of Satan. And so we're to, as Ephesians tells us, we're to walk according to our calling. Walk worthy of the calling. Walk as children of light. And then to understand the battle that takes place if we're going to walk that way. And recognizing this is what's happening. That that the real question is not who's going to win this battle. The question is who will stand. And ultimately the question for us is will we stand? Will I stand? Will you stand? Because we know who's going to win. And, and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So how goes the battle? And, and I've, I've backed us up so we can see the big picture, so we understand Satan's strategy, so that we will stand. There are multiple ways that he attacks, and we, we see this in Genesis 3, the doubt. As God said, you can eat of every tree. The, the, getting Eve's attention off of God's provision and onto the restriction, the attack on God's character. No, God knows if you do this, you're going to miss out. Well, the doubt 
doubting the necessity, doubting the purpose, doubting the motive of the restriction God had given. You see the subtlety of it? It just plants that seed of doubt. It raises a question. It's not actually outright denial initially. Satan's endeavor was to make Eve doubt God's goodness, therefore concluding the restrictions are not good. And if the restrictions aren't good, then obviously God isn't good, and he gave them for a wrong reason. And when we focus, when, that is, when we struggle with submission, we're going to struggle with those areas. The next thing was the distortion that came. Every tree, and, and Satan intentionally distorts what God said to, to maximize the restriction. Can't you eat of every tree of the garden? Well, Eve's attention is now on what they can't do. And, and God said, you shall surely die. Eve says, lest you die. She weakens the emphatic aspect of that statement. And that's followed by the outright denial. You won't really die. That's not going to happen. Satan denies that God will carry out the consequences of disobedience and therefore questioning God's authority. So once again, who's going to reign? Who's going to be in charge? And, and then the defiance. And, and we see that in verse 5 of this passage. Of, as God knows in the day you'll, you eat thereof, you're going to be like him. And so the implication is that God doesn't actually have the authority to carry this out. He's trying to keep you in, under his authority, but he can't do that. It's only in submission, though, that we see the wisdom and love of the authority. That God's way is best. That his plan is perfect. When he says no, there's, there's good reason. It's for his glory and it, it's for our good. And when we rebel against God and view his restrictions in, in a negative way, we don't understand his heart and it's, it hurts our relationship with him. That we would recognize the goodness of God, the mercy of God. And understanding this aspect that people who rebel against God view that as a negative, that somehow God doesn't know what's best. And yet recognizing when we struggle with that submission, then we see the restrictions as interfering with what we want. That we're missing out. It's only when we submit to God and say, God, your will be done. That I want to serve you. That we're going to see his wisdom and love. That his way is perfect. That his way is best. So all of that gives us the understanding of the conflict. That this is a conflict of the ages. And therefore we can stand. So going back to Ephesians 6. And as we began there, I want to conclude here and see that these imperatives, the four of them, be strong in the Lord, in the power of his night, might put on the whole armor, the panoply is the Greek word there, of God, that you may be able to stand. Therefore, take the whole armor of God, that you can stand in an evil day and having done all to stand. And then verse 14, stand therefore. Each of these is... is an important aspect because it's in the present tense. These are present passive imperative verbs. Say, so what does that mean? Well, the present means God's strength is per currently available to us. It denotes that continuous action. It's an action in progress that, that we can be strong and, and put on the armor because it's available to us now and recognizing that. The passive means that God supplies what is needed to make us strong. That we are the recipients 
of the action. The passive voice represents that the subject is being the recipient of that. So we are receiving it from God. And so understanding the importance of that, the imperative is it's God's command. It's not an option. We're on the winning side. He's given us what we need. And so therefore, it's currently available to us. It wasn't just to the church at Ephesus. Well, it's nice they had that. It'd be nice if we could have it. No, it's available to us as well. And we receive it from Him. And therefore, we're to be strong. And when we understand that, then we can stand. So in conclusion, we can be strong because we belong to God. We need to be strong for the right reasons. We are His. Finally, my brethren, believers, as Christians, we're His children. We need to be strong because God is going to use us in the lives of others for His glory. He will use us to touch other believers. This is being written to a local church body. And that we need one another and we strengthen one another. David Martin Lloyd-Jones said, You never know when the mere fact that you are just standing may arrest the attention and open the door of opportunity for the saving gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we have done all to stand in a wicked world, it does get noticed. We're not doing it to be noticed. But our world sees that, and we never know when there will be those opportunities for the gospel to go forth. We need to be strong in the Lord because we know who our enemy is. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. I've tried to take us back to see the big picture this evening, to look at what took place before Genesis 3. And to understand that we have to be sober, be vigilant, because our adversary, the devil, is like a roaring lion looking for whom he can devour. In the third stanza of Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress, it says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Be strong because of your enemy. He's a defeated foe. You know, the original, one of the original stanzas of Charles Wesley's hymn, Soldiers of Christ Arise, reads this way. Stand then against your foes, in close and firm array. Legions of wily fiends oppose throughout the evil day. But meet the sons of night and mock their vain design, armed in the arms of heavenly light, of righteousness divine. We have a defeated foe. And we can be strong by walking in fellowship with Jesus Christ. We can be victorious as we ponder and practice biblical truth on a daily basis. God wants us to be victorious. Every day we're going to experience victory or setback. So how are we doing in the spiritual battle? In the coming weeks, we're going to look at each of these pieces of armor because what what the armor tells us also tells us something about our foe. But hopefully that we will be equipped to stand in an evil day that we will do all to stand. Let's pray together.